So we're in 1 Samuel. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I will tell you right now that I was very convicted by what we're about to study because it really challenged the way I have tended to do things and the way I have tended to think over the years uh, in church life and in, in ministry and fellowship, but, but in my own personal life. This has been a struggle of 40 years, no, 48 years of following Jesus and um, I'm just so thankful that he stays at it. He really does, he stays at it. He, he's still coming after you. And it doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for 48 years or for eight years or for eight months or for two and a half weeks or a day. He will stay after you. He is determined that you know his deep love for you. He just doesn't let go. He's tenacious that way. So we're in 1 Samuel, all that is just, this is where we're going. That's the conclusion of the teaching. First <laughs> Samuel chapter four, verse one. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphak. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, there with the ark of the covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Ever been at one of those retreats? <laughs> and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. See, there was a reputation with this Ark. Remember Jericho? So the people of the land and even the Philistines, they knew there's something to this. And so, verse seven, the Philistines were afraid. For they say, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods, plural, because they don't have a clue what they're talking about. These are the gods who smoke the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And you almost hear just throughout the camp of the Philistines, they're shouting back and forth. They're like, oh no, woe is us, we're in trouble. And someone says, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What a story. Oh, and there is more. This arc from chapter four through chapter six is pretty stunning. And uh, we're gonna finish out, we're just do chapter four this morning. I invite you to come back Wednesday night to finish out this entire story arc because it's, it's pretty crazy. Well into his ministry, Jesus revisited 
Nazareth. You may recall he started off his ministry in Nazareth, in the synagogue, reading from the scroll of Isaiah and declaring himself to be Messiah. They couldn't handle it. They drove him out to the edge of the city. They tried to push him off the cliff, what today we call Mount Precipice, and he just walked through them and went his way. Well, now he returns to the scene of the crime, <laughs> comes back to Nazareth, no doubt with, with an intention to offer them a second chance, which is always what God does. And yet, Matthew 13, verse 58 says, and he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Mark chapter six, verse five says, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. He, he marveled at it. He just thought, how can you, you know, my hometown, not believe? How can you not see who I am? And then it says, and he was going around the villages teaching. So our tenacious Lord just kept going. He goes back to Nazareth. He keeps going village to village, place to place. He continues on his circuit of ministry. Someone's got to hear Prayerfully, someone will understand what this is all about. But he marveled at their unbelief. In 2 Timothy chapter three, Paul writes, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. These are those who look holy, um, play religious, but they are void of the virtue of godliness. Note that where it says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, the power they have denied is the virtue of godliness. There is an inherent power in holiness, in being Christ-like. But these are those who have denied that Christ-likeness, that God-likeness. They may look powerful, they may come off as invincible, but if the focus is self-serving, there's no power of godliness. And while this warning has its roots way back in history, I mean, we can see this time and time again, those pur purporting to be religious, purporting to be godlike or Christ-like, falling to their own lack of virtue their own lack of strength or, or true godly power. We have seen this played out throughout all of history, but Paul said, this is a last day's warning. It's even heightened toward the end. Be wise, be discerning, and don't be surprised to see such attitudes as he describes in those few verses of 2 Timothy chapter three. Be wary here at the end of the days, be wary of such men as these. And I think we can encapsulate the attitude of such men as these. They think they can put God in a box. God in a box. The Hebrew word for box is aron. We also translate it ark. Remember the ark? The ark of the covenant. 
Exodus chapter 25, I'm not gonna do it right now, but it gives the blueprints of that holy box. You can read it, Exodus 25, verses eight through 22. Roughly, it tells us that the Lord told Moses, go build a box of acacia wood and overlay it inside and out with pure gold. The box itself was about three and three quarters feet in length, two and a quarter in width and in height. So it's not a very big box just large enough for the inside to contain, Hebrews chapter nine, verse two tells us, the tablets of the law and a golden jar filled with manna and Aaron's rod that budded. So those things ultimately were placed inside the box, the ark. The lid itself of that box was of hammered gold. So it was a solid piece of gold, hammered and designed. You may recall there were two cherubim on the top of the lid with their wings touching in the middle. And this lid sat on top of the ark. The ark itself was one piece. The lid was a second piece called the mercy seat. Now, the ark with the mercy seat was set in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle and later the temple in what would be referred to as the most holy place or the holy of holies. And God said in Exodus 25, verse 22, there I will meet with you. I'll meet you there. From above the mercy seat, note that. Not sitting on the mercy seat, not within the box, but above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I'll speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 tells us when they finished the construction of the tabernacle and they placed the ark in the holy of holies that the whole thing was filled. The cloud, that is the the cloud of his glory, the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And you Bible students may recall the same thing happened with the first temple. After the construction of Solomon's temple there on the day of dedication, the glory of the Lord so powerfully and potently filled the temple that the priests had to flee the temple, get out, because they could not minister there. It was too full of the glory of the Lord. You gotta remember when we say, hey, Lord, I wish you would just meet us here, we probably couldn't be here. (laughs) You know, you wanna go to church and meet the Lord, come and call for the Lord, and if he shows up, you're fleeing. We're all gonna be out in the parking lot when he fills this place. And so he filled the first temple, he filled the tabernacle with his glory, with his glory. Does God dwell in a tent or in a house built by human hands? Phenomenal cosmic powers, itty bitty living space. Isaiah 61, verse one, the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Jeremiah chapter seven, verse four, do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says in Jeremiah, verse eight, behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul said, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And even today in the world, among Christians and among Jews in Israel, those Jews in Jerusalem who are looking for the coming of Messiah, having missed his first coming, 
I wonder if the desire is more for the next temple than it is for the Lord. If the focus is so much on the temple itself and the implements, everything's done, you know this, everything's done for the next temple. They even have red heifers, good to go for the sacrifice and then for the purification of all the articles to go into the temple. They're just waiting for their chance. And I wonder if the focus is so heavily on the temple that it's like being right back in, in, in the mid 500s or, or near to 600 BC and saying it's the temple of the Lord, that'll save us. We just need our temple and the Lord does not dwell in temples made of hands. Is it about the temple or about the Lord? And, and as far as temples go, as far as church buildings go, you know what they are? They're just a big box. Is that where the Lord dwells? There was a bumper sticker I saw actually several years ago that I, I jotted down and kept note of. It said, God is too big for any one religion. I love when people make these declarations. <laughs> and you know what? I agree. It's absolutely true. God is too big for any one religion. The problem is you gotta add to that sentence, so he made a way for us to come to him by virtue of the purifying blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Clearly, they just didn't have enough room to get all that onto the bumper sticker. <laughs> yes, he's too big for any one religion. Yes, he's greater than we can possibly imagine, but he's the one who made the singular way to him through Jesus. So there is a way to God who is greater and bigger and is glorious. And I love what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, verse six, one of my favorite one-liners of Jesus. I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. And that was at a time when Herod was almost done. They were still in construction on Herod's temple, the second temple that actually, the second temple was much smaller. It was Herod's retrofit and rebuild of the second temple. And it was awesome and majestic and glorious. And Jesus said, meh. Something greater than the temple is here. The problem among the Israelites 3,100 years ago is the same problem in the world today. They have forgotten in 1 Samuel chapter four that the box isn't holy because God belongs to it. It's holy because it belongs to God. He makes it holy because of who he is. And so the focus is not the box. It's the one who called for the making of the box is the one who gave a location. See, this is what he does. He gave a location so the children of Israel could know they could come and in their feeble little minds, they could say, okay, we can meet God here. In Jesus, he gives the one person to whom we can go where we know when we call out the name of Jesus, we can meet God here. He makes it simple for us. He makes it easy for us. Now, again, this is a convicting and a challenging story because if our Easter Sunday teaching last week was reasoning, remember I said, well, I wanna to talk to your minds this morning. If it was reasoning with the mind, this story goes straight to the heart. You gotta take this personally. Story about the Ark of the Covenant, yeah. Let's unpack it a bit. Go back to chapter three, verse 20. Actually, you can look at verse 19 Thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground or fail. Verse 20, all Israel from Dan in the far north 
even to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. This is a great moment. Yes, finally, we have a new prophet, one through whom the Lord will speak and is speaking. And you may recall the Lord had not spoken for some time. It had been mighty quiet. But now Samuel, Samuel, he is a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, verse 21, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And many of us think there's a, there was actually a Christophany there as, as the Lord showed up in the person of Jesus that maybe perhaps Samuel actually saw Jesus there. Whatever you believe about that or think about that, we know that Shiloh was once again the focal point for Israel and the realization that God is among us. It's after the days of the judges, Samuel himself being the last of the judges, first of the prophets as we come into a new season for Israel and all of that horrible 300 to almost 400 years of the judges that was so messy and so brutal and so violent in Israel and so, so immoral. But God has sent a prophet and he is there. He is present at Shiloh again. Thus the word of Samuel, chapter four tells us, came to all Israel. That sentence really ought to be at the end of chapter three. In fact, I believe in the Hebrew scriptures it is tagged on as like a 22nd verse of chapter three. Because then chapter four really picks up, now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in a fake. And, and that's actually how you pronounce it. I mispronounced it earlier. I was trying to get that pronunciation. We, always, we would say a fake, but it's a fake. The place that the Philistines camped was a fake. Those of you who are laughing about that, there, there's some relevance to uh, current Palestinianism. I'll, I'll, I'll explain. The Philistines camped in a fake. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. Again, the battle spread. Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So um, Ebenezer, Israel went out to meet the Philistines and they camped by Ebenezer. Ebenezer is actually three words in the Hebrew. It's Aben Ha'etzer. We just say Ebenezer. We say Ebenezer Scrooge. That's what we would say, but that's not it. Eben Ha'etzer, which means stone of help. They camped at the stone of help. We have a, there's an old hymn that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And I remember growing up and singing that as a kid going, I'm raising up Scrooge. What is this? I don't know what this means. I have no idea. It's one of those words, you know, that the, the hymn writer pulls in and he knows exactly what he's saying, but none of the rest of us ever do. Well, that's what it means. If we come to that, and I think we may, it's the stone of help. My Ebenezer, my, my stone of help. And then there's a fake where the Philistines camped. And a fake literally translates to force or to restrain. So you've got the Israelites at the stone of help and you have the Philistines at the place of forced restraint. A fake is on the coastal plain. So if you were looking at a map of Israel, you look at the, uh, at the Mediterranean Sea and, and you right above, literally above what would be the Gaza Strip today, if you head about 22 miles uh, west of Shiloh, maybe 40 miles north of the Gaza Strip, right there is a fake. And we're gonna see, as the Philistines encamp there, a lot of them in the books of Samuel. Philistines show up a lot. They are the sworn enemies of Israel. They're a pain in the neck and a burn the saddle for the people of God. And they are constantly just 
attacking and, and going after and poking and, and causing trouble for the Israelites all the way up literally until David. David and Solomon finally put them out, finally completely, and ultimately the Philistines as a people group disappeared from all history, never to return. There are no Philistines alive in the world today. There is no Philistine nation. Let me be clear, and I've said this before, but several of y'all are new, and I want you to understand this. There never was an Arab state of Palestine, ever. It's a lie that has been repeated so often since Yasser, that's my baby, Arafat, <laughs> first spoke it in 1964. Do you realize if you looked up an encyclopedia prior to 1964, you could find Palestine, that is the region that had been referred to by the Romans in 135 AD, they started calling it Palestine, which means Philistine land, and it was meant as a slight to the Jews. And that name just kind of stuck. But during that entire time, almost 1900 years, it was just called Palestine. That was the region, it was not a nation. It was controlled by other nations. It was just referred to as that, that region we just, we'll call it, Palestine, they said, and it, it didn't exist as a national entity. It's a deceitful propaganda that has fueled the Arab-Israeli conflict even more ever since 1964. For the last 60 years, that lie has been at the forefront of why people say we have to have a two-state solution for the Palestinians and for the Israelis. But if you look on maps of Palestinian School children, there is no Israel. That's the goal of at least the Palestinian leadership. And listen, I, I, I changed direction several years ago when talking about the Palestinians just to say, I don't have an anger or a spite or a hatred toward Palestinians, those who would call themselves Palestinians. I do toward their leadership because their leadership is using them, the world is using them, and they are being lied to and fed a load of sin that is completely untrue and they're being used as a tool by those who hate the Jews to drive the Jews into the sea. That's the political truth. And this has ignited even more lies, this idea of a Palestinian nation. Lies like this one, you're gonna love this, a New York Times op-ed claiming Jesus was a Palestinian Arab. And there are people who would believe that. You know what, that even denies scripture. It denies ancient scripture. First of all, let's be clear, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? He is God, but in the flesh, he is also unquestionably Jewish by lineage. The Bible declares that long before anyone came up with some bright idea that, well, maybe he's a Palestinian there. Okay, no such thing. No such thing. Further, today's Arab Palestinians are not even related to the Philistines that we're reading about in this chapter. They can't be because the Philistines were Eastern European, not Arabic. The Eastern European Philistines, they, they came from the Isle of Kaftor. They sailed across to Cyprus from the Aegean Sea across the Mediterranean Sea to Cyprus and then across to Israel and settled in what is the region of Gaza today. Philistine country, if you will. And even then, they were not a united nation. 
they were five city-states of Philistines who unified simply for battle and to fight against anyone else who was other than they were by their Eastern European heritage. The Bible even declares this. You can go back to Genesis chapter 10. You can read about them in the, in the table of nations, a group of people called the Kaphtorim. Or, or Moses, in, in declaring the things learned to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 23, Moses said, the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtorim who came from Kaphtor destroyed them and lived in their place. Who are the Kaphtorim? The Philistines. The Eastern European Philistines. The word Philistine, the name Philistine is interesting. It literally translates immigrant or invader. And that's who they were, historically speaking. Immigrant invaders who came to Israel's southeast coast. And so they settled, again, a five-city confederacy of sorts, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. So if you look on a Bible map, those five cities are there. Those five cities are still there in Israel today. Two of them are part of Israel proper, that being Ashdod and Ashkelon, but you've got Gaza, Gath, Ekron that are still part of the Gaza Strip that is held primarily by a terrorist entity called Hamas. And that's where the Philistines lived, not the Palestinians. The Palestinians has been a name, again, co-opted by Yasser Arafat and those who followed as political propaganda. But at this time, back to our story, the interlopers, the invaders, began to go on the attack. I want you to notice this. When did they do it? At a time when the word began to be spoken by Samuel. This is instructive for us. Just as God is beginning to move in his prophet and this good thing is, is taking place at Shiloh and is going to spread to the whole land, Samuel, Samuel, he's our guy, the Philistines rise up and attack. The Philistines were Israel's great enemy, but they remain in the Bible, and remember this as we study through Samuel, they remain a picture of the enemy, Satan. If you watch what they do, watch their strategies, look at their behavior, how Satan moves against and attacks the people of God, and often right when we think God is doing a good thing, that's when he'll attack. That's when he'll counter the good that God is doing. But you need to listen to me on this, and this is, this is something I've, I've wondered about for years. Sometimes we think, or, or what we think, sometimes what we think is the enemy attack, it's actually the discipline of God. You ever have that struggle? You ever go, is this the enemy doing this? Or is this God doing this? And you almost feel bad for asking the question, like it's heretical to even say that. I can't tell the difference in what's happening in my life between the hand of the Lord and the hand of the devil. What's going on here, Lord? And you may think that. You might not even say it out loud. I'll say it for you. Is it the enemy or is it the discipline of God? Is it an attack and spiritual warfare coming from the devil or is it God is disciplining me for something he needs me to learn? How do we know? Let me give you an answer for that. You might wanna write this down. It's irrelevant. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. It's irrelevant. 
It doesn't matter if it's the enemy attack or the discipline of the Lord. The question is, how do we respond? Either to the attack or to the discipline. If the enemy is attacking, am I turning to the Lord? If God is disciplining, am I turning to the Lord? That's the issue. And we sit here and we just, we, we can just spin around trying to figure out what's going on here. Am I under attack or am I under discipline? I don't know. Boy, I wish I knew. Wish I could understand this instead of just going, doesn't matter. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I'm hurting here. This is calamitous. This is a catastrophe. Lord, I need you. And Lord, if there is something in my life that needs correction, then I am turning to you. See, God causes all things to work together to good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, even the attacks of the enemy. So Satan may very well be on the attack in your life. God's got a good plan. Or God may be causing the crisis or the calamity. I know that makes some of y'all uncomfortable, but God says, I am the one who causes calamity. So he declares the power over even to do that. And so when God says that, he may be causing a crisis in your life because he's trying to turn you to him. And by the way, he knows how much he can turn up the heat. He knows how much you can take. And he's there to, to walk you through it. But note that so often, right when we, you know, right when we're hearing the word of the Lord and he's back in Shiloh and things are good and I've got a prophet and it's all headed the right direction, here comes the attack. And that's how Satan tends to move. And the people even recognize the attack and their defeat. 4,000 lost, they recognize it as something the Lord has done. Or at least that's the way they see it. Verse three, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why indeed? Why would you do that, Lord? Well, he already told them why. He's already answered the question before it's been asked. Leviticus 26, verse 17. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one's pursuing you. Or Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them. You will flee seven ways before them and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Why? Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The discipline of the Lord. God, I thought it was enemy attack. Perhaps it is. God will use it to make you stronger. He will use it to discipline you. Was the Lord doing this to me? He may very well be. Why? Because he loves you and the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Remember Jesus said the same thing to lukewarm Laodicea? Of all the seven churches and the letters to the churches in, in the Revelation, Revelation two and three, of all the letters, the one he says, I discipline you because I love you is Laodicea that pathetic, lukewarm, Oscar milk toast church. 
Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Why, Lord? Because I love you. I love you. So the Israelites, they ask, why has the Lord defeated us today? Right question, wrong implication. Question's okay. What's the Lord doing? What does he need me to learn from this? How can I turn to him and be strengthened in this? Great questions. But the implication, they see God's hand in their defeat. But rather than repenting and turning to him, they blame him. And you can read it in the language. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why would he do this? What are you doing, God? They're shaking the fist at the Lord. They're taking an offended an accusatory tone? Hey, sometimes rescue and relief is not what we need. In fact, sometimes when life is hard, we need to stay in the pain a little longer instead of scrambling to try and get out from under it as quickly as possible, either by blaming God or blaming others. Maybe we need to stay with it and say, what is going on here? What is the Lord doing? He's always doing something. We need to stay with loss. We need to stay with hurt long enough to learn to trust and obey. And I don't know about you, but I found in my life when I begin to trust, when I begin to obey the Lord again, it seems like then the comfort comes. Then the peace comes. Then the resolution comes. But oftentimes I will stay in a place of difficulty because I am railing against the Lord rather than repenting toward the Lord to see what it is that he's doing. But instead of calling for fasting and repentance and humbly turning to the Lord, again, their fists are in the air. And by the way, it's interesting, verse one begins with, although it should be in chapter three, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You're not gonna see a Samuel again until chapter seven. He is absent from this story because the people are not appealing to their prophet to the Lord. Had the people gone to him, had they gone to God's man, who were told very clearly before this event happens that all Israel knew Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. They knew this. Okay, Samuel's our guy. Everybody knew it. From north to south, had they turned to Samuel and said, Samuel, cry out for us, pray for us. We lost 4,000. We're missing something. Help us to return to the Lord. And Samuel had prayed for the people. I guarantee you the outcome would have been very different than the story that we're about to read. Verse three continues. This is what they did. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So they, the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So in other words, Hophni and Phinehas are in. They're part of this. They're excited to be part of this. All right, this is, this is great. Everyone in Israel knows how bad these two guys are. We learned that in the last chapter. Everyone, the talk was all around Israel. These two guys, not only were they stealing for themselves sacrificial meat before it was offered, not only are they taking whatever they want, but they are abusing and misusing the women who serve at the doorway of the tabernacle. At best, they are luring them into sexual relationship. At worst, 
they are raping them. These are bad guys. I have actually even refrained from making jokes about Hophni and Phinehas, and I could, because they're just so evil. And these two guys are priests of Israel, and it's to these two guys that the Israelites go for help. Get the ark, get Hophni and Phinehas, why? They all know the character of these two men. Why are they going to them? Because these two guys can help us with our agenda. I know they're bad, but as long as what they do helps me, well then it's okay. What's the agenda? They need priests to carry the ark. They wanna try and put the best foot forward and they think they can put God in a box. Rather than spiritual repentance, they are all in for cheap and easy religious representation. And this is where I hope that this can get to your heart a little bit. Verse three can be translated let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us. Or it can also just as rightly be translated, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that he may come among us and deliver us. Rabbis will accept it either way. That which is translated it in the New American Standard Bible may very well be he, so it could refer to the ark of the covenant of the Lord, which would be it, or it could just be referring to the Lord himself, which is he. So here's the deal. Either way, they're putting constraints on God. Whether it's that they believe the ark will rescue them or they believe the Lord himself will rescue them, they are putting God in a box. With the first one, it's idolatry. That is, they think the power is in the ark of the covenant itself, just like Indiana Jones did. Just like in that movie, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, how Hitler wanted the box and everybody was trying to get the box and everybody thought that that's where the power was and the movie even implied that the power was in the box when they opened the lid and all of that. It's idolatry. We need the box. If we have the power box in the battle, we'll win because that's why they won Jericho, right? Because they carried the box. Hey, the box never went into battle. The box was just carried around the city. It was not carried in in the charge. And it was, by the way, according to Torah law, it was against the law of God to use the ark in battle. Yeah, but we've seen it work before, so they go get the box. Well, that's idolatry. But if it's he, that he might, let's go get the box that God might deliver us. Listen, don't miss this. It's exploitation. Idolatry or exploitation. It's exploitation because they think they can force God to fight for them if his holy box is in tow. We still do it. Idolatry and exploitation. Think about with me for, think about this for a second here. From rabbit's feet to rosary beads, we do the same thing. Cross jewelry. And if you're wearing a cross this morning, I'm not gonna call you out to little icons people will put on their dashboards, to wall hangings and pictures that we have in our homes, to olive wood carvings that you can buy in Bethlehem, <laughs> to portrayals of Jesus on film. Now, some of you are gonna be so frustrated that I keep bringing this up because I know some of you love the chosen. Okay. I keep getting red flags I just, 
And I, so I gotta be honest with you, and you can disagree with me and say, no, this has changed my life, this has given me such great devotional focus, great, good for you, praise the Lord. I hope you are praising the Lord, I'm sure you are, uh, but you gotta, I, hey, I'm the pastor, I get to say what I want. <laughs> Just listen to me for a second. Here's my problem with the chosen, and I know I've brought it up many, many times. When I watch, when, when I read the books, The Lord of the Rings, Guess who I see now when I think of Frodo? Elijah Wood. I see the actor. I had a picture in my mind when I was younger and I read through the Lord of the Rings of who Frodo was. You know, I had this, I, this vision. That's gone. I can't even dredge that up anymore. I see Elijah Wood. I see the actor. Who do you see when you pray to Jesus after being three, four, or five seasons into The Chosen? Who are you gonna see? That's my concern. I don't wanna see that guy. He played Lonnie Frisbee in The Jesus Revolution. Did a great job. He's also on an app that you can see. There's, there's an ad that he does where he says, hey, can you just take a minute and pray with me? And he goes, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he starts to pray. That's the actor. You go, oh, yeah, that's just the actor. I just like the chosen. That's great. Again, that's your choice. Who are you worshiping? God said, don't make any image of me because you can't do it. You can't make, an, you can't make a representation of me. Jesus alone, and I'm talking our Lord Jesus Christ is the exact representation of his nature. No one else can represent God. So I would say not even an actor, and it concerns me because I think there are Christians who are beginning to see the actor as their Jesus. And I, I just caution you against that. Let me caution against something else, not related to the chosen, so you're off the hook now. Your Bible can be a thing of idolatry. I'm not talking about the words spoken, God-breathed, inspired, that are contained within. I'm talking about the Bible itself, that leather-bound book, and I have found myself being idolatrous with this. Almost like, where's my phone? Oh, good, it's there. Where's my Bible? God, oh, good, it's there. I brought my Bible with me. We went down to a wedding yesterday on South Whidbey, and so we're going to church, and as I'm in the car, I'm, I'm going, I feel like I left something at home. Oh, yeah, it's my Bible. <laughs> so I gotta have it. Is this my Ark of the Covenant? Am I sending to Shiloh to bring this into battle? Because I think that this is somehow gonna save me? John chapter five, verse 38. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And Jesus said, conviction, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You'll go to your Bible. Will you come to me? Will you come to me for life? Things, no matter what they are, be it a Bible or a DVD series or any of these little trinkets that we talked about before, things are always poor substitutes for God. And we gravitate to things. And I get it. We all do this because, here's the deal. You know why people love the chosen so much? Because we want to be closer to Jesus. That's it. I, the motivation is good. The motivation is right. Why do I cling to my Bible? I want to be close to Jesus. Why would I wear that cross necklace? I want to be close to, I just want to be reminded of him. That's a good thing. 
Why the rosary beads? Why does the Catholic pray with the rosary beads? Because they want something tangible that they can feel while they pray to help them draw near to the Lord. The drawing near is the right thing. It's the things that get in the way. That's idolatry. These are all forms of idolatry that affect us today when Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So listen to me, Christians who long to know God's presence. Would you just hear me for a moment? He is present. He is present. He is with you. He is with me right now, right here. He promised such. John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 2 Corinthians 1.21, Paul said, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And by the way, that doesn't mean the Spirit's limited to right here. I even find myself doing that. My heart can be a little idle. You know, you're in worship and going, oh, Lord, I'm so glad you're here. Well, is he not here? Is he not here? Is he not here? Paul said in Ephesians 1.13, and Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, remember the gospel of the mega glad? Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. What does that mean? God looks to see if his spirit is with you. And if it is, saved. He's my seal. The fact that he's present with me and in my life. We even went so far as to say during our rapture series, his presence in my life will be the power that catches me up. If he's not here, I'm not going up. But it's because he's here, God sees and notes me as one of the saved, marked for salvation by the very presence of his spirit. And Hebrews 13, five tells us that he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Translated, it's the five negatives that speak a positive. I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. This is what God has said. So understand, we never lose the presence of his Holy Spirit. What we do lose is the conscious awareness of his Holy Spirit. He hasn't gone anywhere, but our minds may drift off. Our recognition that he is with us may get uh, messy. In my day-to-day -day life, I might forget, but he is still here. He is here. Psalm 46.10, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. Matthew 28.20, Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Don't replace Jesus with a cheap or an expensive imitation. Don't look to objects, don't look to images in place of the Lord himself as if the ark itself or later in Jeremiah's day, the temple of the Lord had some kind of innate power. It didn't. The power was the presence of God, not the box. And we 
box in God or attempt to when we are idolatrous or perhaps worse, when we exploit God. I'm not done with the conviction stuff. That's just the idolatry. What about the exploitation? Perhaps even worse than misplaced idolatry is the religious exploitation of trying to box God in. Well, I don't do that. Let's think this through. It's saying if we have the ark, God will have to come fight our battles for us. Verse five. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. They said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage. Be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Remember, they were enslaved to the Philistines throughout the times of the judges off and on. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Notice what the enemy does when the people make a great shout in their idolatrous exploitation of God, the enemy drives harder, comes in more powerfully, and in this case, ends up taking out the idol and the leaders of the idol who were exploiting it. They all get wiped out. 4,000 dead in one day, and now it's 37 times more dead now on the next day, 30,000. And the ark is in the enemy's hands, and Hophni and Phinehas are dead, which, by the way, God twice warned that they would be in chapter 2, verse 34, chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. And the people of Israel are stunned. God wouldn't allow that, would he? We have the ark. We have the ark. He'd have to win. God doesn't want to look like a loser. Let me give you two principles on this. Number one, and these are not like little easy, snappy, three-word phrases. This, two sentences. Number one, God would rather bear shame than allow people to keep up a bogus relationship with him. How do you know that? Because I look at the scriptures. There are many times that the Lord's name has been dragged through the mud, and he allows it. Why? Because he's not gonna play games of relationship. And so he would rather the ark be taken, the battle be lost, and the, and the enemy think, perhaps for a moment, that he's bested God. God would rather allow that than have his people remain in a false relationship. Secondly, God will allow us <laughs> to be disappointed with him if it will wake us up to who he really is. So when you've had those faith struggles, when you've prayed and you've said, I, I just, how, how could God do this to me? I don't understand, you know, and, and, you, and you really, you spin around in that place. God will allow you to be disappointed with him. God, how could you? Why would you? I don't understand. He'll allow that if it'll wake you up to who he is. If in that struggle, you will come to recognize his 
true character. He's big enough to allow us to be disappointed. He's big enough to allow his name to be shamed rather than have us go on in fake relationship. I'm gonna read you guys a paragraph. This is from a, um, a commentary I have by Davis, and he just does such a great job, uh, great commentary. Davis says, what is behind a church's 24-hour prayer vigil? Is it a desire to be earnest with God, or is there some thinking that if we simply organize and orchestrate such coverage, God will be forced to grant whatever we're praying about? Now, <laughs> apply that to how you pray. When was the last time you prayed just to talk to God? I, there's an exercise I do sometimes. I'll constrain myself not to ask for anything. Not that you can't. Prayers and petitions and requests be made known to God, that is absolutely biblical, but you need to understand his motivation behind that is simply that we come to him in prayer because he knows it's gonna develop that relationship. But when was the last time you prayed? You didn't ask for anything. You just prayed to be in his presence. You just prayed because you wanted to talk to him. You wanted to be with him. Jake, I love your example of, of you and your dad. Would you share with me a couple of times that his dad telling him my favorite thing, and I may be ripping off a, a, an example you're gonna use in teaching while I'm gone, but that's okay. You've done it to me. <laughs> He's with his dad alone in, in the room, and they're talking, and his dad says, you know what my favorite thing to do with you is? And, and Jake's trying to think of all these things they've done, fishing or you know, outriding or whatever. His dad says, no, it's this. And Jake understood that. That is so touching to me. What is the, what's my favorite thing to do with my kids? It's just to hang out with them. I don't care what we're doing. I love when they come. I love when they come pile on our bed on Tuesday nights after youth group, and they do it every week. They interrupt so many shows that Cheryl and I are trying to get through. <laughs> Door opens, and in they come, all three of them, David, Chris, and Naomi, and they just flop on my bed, and they're there for like an hour and a half. And I love it. My favorite time with them. When was the last time you just were with God just to be with God? You just talk to Jesus just to be with Jesus. He goes on, he says, what's the drive behind our daily devotional exercises? Is it delight in meeting with God or is it just that things may go better that day? He says, whenever the church stops confessing thou art worthy and begins chanting thou art useful, well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. Older Christians, and by older, <laughs> I don't mean age-wise, I mean maturity-wise, I mean spirituality-wise. If you have been at this for a while, especially you, listen to this. Galatians, turn in your Bibles over to Galatians chapter three. Just go over there just for a second. Boy, I gotta move. I promised myself after last Sunday's hour and 20 minute Easter Sunday sermon, I would go a little shorter to prove that it could be done. Well, <laughs> Galatians chapter three. Verse one, Galatians 3, one. Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I wanna find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I think we know the answer to that question. Are you so foolish? 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles or works of power among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It is such a simple rhetorical question, but the truth is, I came to Jesus because of Jesus. I, I, any good thing that I do, I do by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And I'm even saved because he has chosen to save me. It is all about the presence of the Lord. It has nothing to do with the works of my hands. Skip over to chapter six, Galatians chapter six, verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Oh, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. What is the good that Paul is calling the Galatian church to do? My friends, it is sowing to the Spirit. And you can start this morning sowing to the Spirit by going to him for no other reason but to be with him. You can, this day, pause in the cacophony of life just long enough to say, Lord, I just, I just wanna be in your presence today. I just wanna be aware of you. I want conscious awareness to return because I know you're here. I know you are present. It's never the works of the flesh. It's never our physical efforts of strength that gets the job done. It's trust, trust and obey. I love that old hymn. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The Israelites are doing one of two things. They are either trusting the box, which is idolatry, or they're thinking they can exploit God by looking all spiritual with the box in tow, and that's manipulation, and both lack faith. We need to learn to trust the Lord alone. Well, verse 12, now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. By the way, if you saw that, you know it's bad news. It's bad news. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. Here sits Eli spiritually passive Ellie. We talked about this Wednesday night. This is the one who called out his sons for their heresy, for their sexual immorality. He got on to them, but he didn't have the guts to remove them as priests. He just let them continue doing what they were doing. You shouldn't do that. And then he goes back and does nothing. And in fact, it's worse than that. If you were here Wednesday night, you know Ellie was somewhat involved, at least with the eating of the meat. So here he's sitting, the same one. What did Ellie do? We don't have it in the story, I can only guess. What did Ellie do when the ark was hauled out of the tabernacle and off into war? Did he protest? Possibly. Oh no, you guys shouldn't do this. But did he, as the high priest, stand up, put his foot down, and refuse to allow the ark to be taken? No. No. It's that spiritual passivity is still in play. I think 
This is just me, but I think Ellie is sitting on his seat there by the side of the road waiting for word and he is hoping against the God of all hope that maybe perhaps things will somehow turn out okay. That he knows in his heart of hearts this is not the way to do it, but if it works, hey, it works. If this yields the result we were hoping for, well, then okay, then, 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 it's, then it's justified. I've thought that way. Perhaps you've thought that way. God doesn't play games. Don't play games with him. Don't rationalize things. God never turns a blind eye to sin, to disobedience. Don't gamble by rationalization. Again, if it turns out okay, it must be okay. Not so. It didn't turn out okay for Israel, did it? Yeah, but sometimes it does. I know, that's the problem. Sometimes God, by his grace, allows us a little extension of time to come around. And so things kind of work out by our, uh, our works of our flesh, and we think, oh, that's what caused it, that's what did it. It's not gonna work out ultimately for you or for me if we play the same games. Well, verse 14, when Ellie heard the noise of the outcry, what does the noise of this commotion mean, he said. And then the man came hurriedly and told Ellie, now, Ellie was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. So he didn't see the torn clothes in the dust. He just heard the foot soldier, heard the cry of the city. What does this mean? What's going on? Is it a cry of joy? Is it a cry of, of sorrow? And the man came and said, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? And then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there was also a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. My friends, it is a realization of the prophecy back in chapter two, verse 34, which tells us this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day both of them will die. That's the interesting thing about Bible prophecy. Sometimes it is immediate and it confirms the voice of the prophet. And sometimes it's much longer term. The thing that we, why, why do we trust some of those Hebrew prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ? Because the prophets who spoke them were proven true by prophecies that were fulfilled in their lifetimes. So God said, if, if you prophesy and it's true, that's one of my prophets. If you prophesy and it doesn't come true, even one thing, you're not my prophet. So in your life, and note this, in the church, someone comes up to you and says, I have a prophecy for you, and they speak it, and it does not come true. That person is not a prophet of the Lord. Don't listen to them. But in this case, it was spoken, and now Hophni and Phinehas are dead the same day. Proverbs chapter 12, verse seven says, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the Lord will stand. And when it says the house of the Lord, we're not talking about the house of the righteous will stand. It's not the temple. It's the people who stand with the Lord. But watch this, verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, Ellie fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For he was old and heavy. Why was he heavy? Because he was eating the sacrificial steak. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. He would be the last of the judges until Samuel. Samuel is the final judge. But the disturbing word, note this, the disturbing word that knocked Ellie off his chair and to his death was not the death of his sons. I think he half expected that. What rocked Ellie 
and brought about his death, note this, it was the capture of the ark. When he heard that the ark had been captured, that's what killed Eli, not the death of his sons. What does that tell us about Eli? His faith also was in the religious artifact. I'm not minimizing the value of the ark of God. Please understand. This was built by God's command and, and, and is incredibly important in the, in the scheme of the history of Israel and, and I believe the future. But when we make, I'm gonna repeat this, any thing, any religious thing, be it symbol, building, program, ministry, movement, when we make any religious item more important than people, we have lost our sense of the heart of God. And that's a challenge to me because Jesus lived and died for people. People mattered. Ellie dies over a broken heart from the ark having been taken. Jesus died for people. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does that mean? It means love him. It means move in relationship with him. It means talk to him. It means share with the Lord your deepest stuff. It means being open and genuine and honest with God and not playing games because he's not a game-playing God. Love the Lord. This is the great and foremost commandment, Jesus says. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus said it's all about the love. It is always all about the love with God. And it's a love, by the way, that refuses to accept sin that kills us. So yes, love has its standard in righteousness and in truth and in justice and in goodness. Love recognizes sin for what it is and says, that is not okay, which is why Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They just don't know. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, so she's dying in this childbirth, the women who stood by her said to her, do not be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And this part of the story ends tragically. She dies in childbirth, why? Because of the hopeless despondency of a broken heart. The context makes it clear what kills her is not the birth, it's the death. The death of her father-in-law, the death of her husband. So this Phineas was married while he was playing around on the side, bad dude. And yet still for her, this is her husband, he's dead. Father-in-law, dead. The ark of God has been taken. And so without hearing anything that is said, she says, the glory of God has gone into exile. That's literally what departed means there. The glory of God has gone into exile, the ark of the covenant. To her, this is God's glory, is now, I mean, think about that statement, really? You think you can exile God's glory? 
really? The, the, the faith was so much in the religious artifact that as it was taken by the Philistines, the glory of God has gone into exile. Remember, it wasn't the box that made the whole, most holy place most holy. It was God's glory that made it holy. His glory in the Hebrew is kabod. The kabod, this is e kabod. Glory gone, no glory. Glory departed. In verse 22, for she said, the glory has departed, the glory has gone into exile from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Was it? Was the glory gone from Israel? No one wants to answer. The answer is yes, yes, temporarily. But here's the problem. The dead widow of the dead priest got it backwards. The glory of God had indeed departed not because the ark was taken. No, the ark was taken because the glory of God had already departed. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? But while the presence of God never departs a follower of Jesus today, God may yet allow us to lose that conscious awareness of his spirit so that we will return to him so that we will come crying out to him as Samuel himself will eventually advise. Look over in chapter seven, verse three. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart. He doesn't say if you, if you return the ark, if you go take out the Philistines. He says, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the asherot from among you. That is, get rid of the idolatry. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. Get rid of the exploitation. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. This morning, we can hold to a form of godliness having denied its power. We can do that. We can try to box up the glory of God through idolatry or through manipulation. Perhaps you have but there is deliverance from our despondency. Again, as Samuel said, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the imitations, the false religious things from among you, direct your heart to the Lord to serve him alone, he will deliver you. Father, deliver us. Deliver us, Lord, from our foolishness. Deliver us from the idolatry we don't even think we have. We so often think of idolatry as, a, as an old school Baal Ashtaroth thing. We don't recognize how we have replaced you with images and icons and symbols. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from our idolatry. Lord Jesus, deliver us from the way we exploit you and manipulate, even in our prayers, even in our programs and the things we do in our lives. We think if we do this, we can get God involved in it instead of joining you where you are instead of returning to you. Oh, Father, deliver us from religious exploitation. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is that we each would return to knowing you are your very promised presence. And we would enjoy being with you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 